We're continuing this morning the story of Joseph, or perhaps more accurately, the story of Jacob's sons. Joseph doesn't feature at all in Genesis 38. It's an extraordinary story, a shocking story, you might say. Uh, Not at all the kind of story you might expect to be in the Bible. So we're going to read it and then dive in to see what God has to say to us through it. So let's hear God's word. Genesis 38, it's on page 32. And we'll begin at verse 1. You might remember last time Joseph has been betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery. Taken off to Egypt uh, by some traders. So Genesis 38 verse 1. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go in to your brother's wife, and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went in to his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground, so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adullamite. And when Tamar was told, Your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, She took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance of Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she'd covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it, he said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that's in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adullamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. (coughs) And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute? He was at Enaim at the roadside. And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I've not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or she'll be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. 
Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I'm pregnant. And she said, please identify who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labour came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labour, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you've made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterwards, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. What a story, eh? Let's pray before we look at it more closely. Oh, Father God, uh, all scripture is your word, is God-breathed, is inspired by your spirit, and is useful, therefore, for the building up of your church. We pray this morning that that same spirit who wrote these words would uh, speak to our hearts and enlighten our minds so we might understand and hear what you are saying to us through it. Uh, We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. But it really isn't the kind of story you expect on a Sunday morning, is it? Uh, This story of Joseph, and particularly this story of Judah and Tamar, is full of all the kind of things you normally try and tidy away. Uh, Death, adultery, prostitution, uh, attempted murder. Uh, It it really isn't a, well, it's not a kind of PG story. It's not in any of my children's kind of children's Bibles. Uh, it's papered over. In fact, if you listen to, to sermon series on, on the, the book of Joseph or the story of Joseph, very often it's, it's, it's sort of hop, skipped and jumped over because it feels like an interruption, doesn't it? We, we had all this action with Joseph and his brothers and the dreams and he's sold to be a slave. We wonder what's going to happen to him. And suddenly for a whole chapter, nothing about Joseph whatsoever. So what's going on? Why this story? Why is it put here in the middle of the Joseph uh, adventure? When you, when you read Bible stories, particularly these Old Testament stories, I think you're meant to listen out in, in two ways. I just want to think about Old Testament stories for a minute before we look at the details of this one. You're looking at the themes and the scenes, themes and scenes. You're listening out for those two things. The, the themes are these big kind of overarching stories that help us understand the, the big points God's trying to get across. Children, when you look watch movies. I don't know if you watch Star Wars yet. It might be a bit old for you. Yeah, Star Wars, there we go. Star Wars. When you listen to Star Wars, you'll know that some of the music comes back again and again, doesn't it? So, so when you hear, dun, 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 who's coming? Darth Vader. Okay, that's the, that's the that's, sorry, it's bad singing, isn't it? But that, that's the, that music comes time and again throughout the movies as a kind of theme that reminds you the baddies are coming. At other times you get the, da, 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 da. that's, that's the goodies. Okay, okay. okay. and th- that music comes time and time again throughout the, the movies, whether you're on the first movie or the sixth, or I don't know how many they're on to now. Okay. The repeated themes remind us of the kind of big story that's going on. Okay, baddies versus goodies, um, Jedi's against the other ones. Okay, now in the uh, in the story of in the story of Joseph, there is a big theme going on. 
Okay, we've seen it over the last couple of work weeks. The big theme is God is going to get his man, his chosen man, on the throne. Joseph had these dreams that he would be raised up and the rest of his family would bow down. And that is, that is the big picture story of Joseph. And we've thought already about the fact that in some ways it shows us the big picture story of the whole Bible. The whole Bible has themes. And the story of the whole Bible is that God is going to get his son on the throne, Jesus Christ. Through all sorts of twists and turns, through sufferings, through lows as well as highs, God will do it. So when you read any Old Testament story, we ought to be thinking as Christians, what is this telling me? What is this showing me about God's plan to get Christ to be king of all the universe? How does this story point me to Jesus and the gospel? But we're also meant to look at the scenes, if you like, look at the details. As we hear about these incredible stories, we're meant, if you like, to pick up lessons on the way, to learn from the characters. Uh, this is how, in the New Testament, uh, often Jesus and Paul and the apostles use the old. So Jesus warns us, for example, not to be like Lot's wife. Do you remember Lot's wife? They were fleeing and, and she turned around and was turned back and into a pillar, pillar of salt. And, and Jesus says, don't be like that. He uses Lot's wife as an example, a negative example. Or that of Peter. Peter uses Sarah, who's the wife of Abraham, as an example of what a good wife is like. So when you read these stories too, we mustn't be afraid of drawing, if you like, what you might just say, moral lessons from them. How should we live as God's people? Now, if that's all you drew from them, you'd, you'd miss the big theme, the big point that they point forward to Jesus. But, but the moral lessons are there as well. And, and so we're going to look at these, these six scenes. I think there are six scenes in this story on the way through before we look at the big themes. So we're going to zoom in on these six scenes uh, of this movie. So let's start with, with Judah's spouse. Okay, Judah's spouse, Judah's marriage. Uh, hopefully the, the uh, ESV uh, breaks the six scenes up into paragraphs um, that um, just help our, us navigate our way through the story. So verses one to five, we, we meet Judah's spouse. Uh, verse one, it happened at that time that Judah went down to his brothers. At that time, what time is it? What's the time of this story? Well, it's the time when, if you look at the verse before, Joseph had been sold in Egypt to this guy Potiphar, who we'll meet in the next chapter. At, at the same time as Joseph is serving Potiphar, and as we'll see, as the story goes on, resisting Potiphar's wife who tries to seduce him, Judah is doing exactly the opposite. Okay, Joseph and Judah are put in parallel. So if you like, chapter 38 and chapter 39 should, should, should run as split screens. If you're making a movie, that the events of chapter 38 are happening at the same time as the story of Joseph that we'll get to in the next few chapters. In fact, the events of chapter 38 must last at least, what, 20, 25 years? At the start of chapter 38, Judah isn't married, he's a young man. By the end of it, his, well, what should be his grandchildren's generation are around. His sons have grown up, married, died, and perhaps 20, 25 years later, uh, we get to the climax of the story. So this is a, a, sh a shortest chapter, but with a long story. And it's happening whilst Joseph is going through his adventures uh, in Egypt. Uh, it starts pretty badly for Judah. At that time, Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adullamite, whose name was Hira. Uh, Judah leaves the people of God, that the 12 brothers, bad as they 
have been in our story so far, they are the ones that God has promised he will build his church out of, his family out of. And so when Judah turns aside and goes down from them, those are clues that he's walking away from God's people. Okay, he's walking away from the church, we might say, uh, to use New Testament language. Those little phrases, turn aside and went down, are almost always bad news in the Bible, in these kind of stories. They're used of turning aside from the, the right path, uh, going down away from God's way. And it's no surprise that as Judah's story goes on, he ends up in such a mess. When he leaves God's people, well, all sorts of consequences follow. It's very often the case, isn't it? If you want to run away from God, if you want to to cleanse your conscience so you don't feel so bad about disobeying God, the first thing you do is separate yourself from God's people. God's people very often are a reminder of how we ought to live. Uh, When you see people just start drifting away from Sunday mornings or sort of avoiding you, not really hanging out with folk at church anymore. Very often it's a clue that just something is going on. They're beginning to slip away, not just from you as a friendship group, but actually from the Lord. Uh, you might have heard the story of a, a Scottish shepherd, a minister back, uh, back in the day. Uh, and this shepherd began to just start missing church on a Sunday. He wasn't a particularly educated man. He, he didn't like long arguments and reading books. And the minister, the Scottish minister was trying to think, well, how do I teach this guy of the dangers of walking away from church, leaving God's people. And so he went out into the fields and found him one evening uh, looking after his, his flock uh, out on the hillside. And the shepherd was warming himself behind, by, beside a little, little fire, a little coal fire. And the minister didn't say anything, just walked up and sat down next to the shepherd. And he kept quiet for a moment. And then he reached up with a stick and just picked a coal out of the fire, a glowing coal, and popped it down uh, on the grass. What happens to a coal if you take it out of the fire? Yeah, what happens? Go on. What? It, burns it burns the grass. And what happens to the coal? It gets colder and colder and colder. So as the shepherd watched the burning coal, it faded and faded and faded until it was cold. Then the minister picked the coal up again, put it back in the fire, and it began to glow and, and burn and heat up again. And the minister walked off. That was his lesson for the shepherd. Separate yourself from others, from God's people, and you tend to grow cold. Come back into fellowship with them, and God uses one another, uses other people to warm us up. Judah is walking uh, away, and it's no surprise, therefore, in verse 2, that we see him uh, take an even greater step away. He marries, or takes, uh, a Canaanite woman. Uh, that the words used to describe it, again, are kind of trigger words of the Bible. Do you see in verse 2, he saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite and he took her. He saw and he took. He saw and he took. That little pairing, someone seeing something and taking it, right from Genesis 3 has been bad news. It's the word used for, uh, it's the phrase used to describe Eve seeing the fruit and then taking it. Or a few chapters later, the sons of God see people they shouldn't marry and take them. Even just a couple of chapters earlier in Genesis uh, 30, uh, 35, uh, this guy Shechem sees one of Jacob's daughters, Dinah, sees and takes, seeing and taking. It's not just a kind of, he fell in love. It's much more kind of grasping than that. And she's a Canaanite. She doesn't share his religion. And yet he marries her and sleeps with her. Again, if drifting away from church is a sign that people often are leaving the Lord. That then marrying somebody who doesn't share uh, our faith 
It often has disastrous consequences. Right the way through Old and New Testament, that is a constant warning. That, that, that God, doesn't, God isn't, isn't racist, doesn't care what, what, what race people marry. Okay? It is no concern whether you marry someone of a different nationality, different ethnic background. What he cares about is that we marry someone of the same faith. The problem with this woman isn't simply that she lived in a different country, but she didn't share faith in the God of the Bible. And so Judah ploughs on his merry way, and he has these three sons, uh, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And it seems that he's not even around by the time Shelah is born in verse 5. He's not exactly a model dad. So, scene one. Uh, but the action kind of heats up, really, in scene two. This is verses 6 through 11. We've seen Judah's spouse, now it's Judah's sons. And it's very strange, isn't it? Uh, Judah, Judah decides it's time for his elder son, Ur, to get married. So he finds, her, uh, finds uh, him a wife. But, verse 7, now we don't know what's going on here or why. For some reason, Ur is sufficiently wicked that God puts him to death. It's shocking, isn't it? Just out of nowhere, with no details, we're told that Ur is put to death by God. God in the Bible, again, from beginning to end, is the judge of all the earth. And he, he's not obliged to wait until judgment day. Yes, we know that one day uh, we'll die and face him in judgment, but, but God isn't obliged to wait until then. If he wants to, he intervenes when and how he likes. So, so with Ur the eldest dead, we get this to our eyes and ears. Very strange request or command already from Judah. Uh, Judah takes the next brother, Onan, who's now the eldest, and tells him to go and sleep with Tamar, i.e. his first brother's wife, widow now. Now, again, it, it sounds bizarre to our ears, doesn't it? And if, you know, if we've got brothers-in-law, sisters-in-law, it, it kind of makes us take a step back and think, that's, that's just grim. But actually, it was the common practice of the time. And in the, even in the law of Moses, a few generations later, is commanded. The, the idea was this, that, that each family, each brother, had certain property. Uh, and their name was attached to that property. Yeah, this is uh, Peter's land. Okay? This is John's land. This is Sam's land. Uh, and it would pass down to the son, to the elder son. But if you died before you had a child, well, what would happen to your property, your farm, your cattle? Well, uh, what would happen is it was the duty of your brother to provide you with children. Uh, that's why do you see uh, in verse 8, Judah tells Onan, go and sleep with Tamar, perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. The children won't be Onan's, they'll be Ur's, even though Ur has died. It's called leveret marriage. And again, it sounds very strange to us, but it was the custom uh, of the time, and is written in, in fact, to Old Testament law. But Onan knows this, verse 9, you see, Onan knew the offspring, any child wouldn't be his. And so whenever he sleeps with Tamar, he makes sure he doesn't get her pregnant. What's he thinking? He's thinking, I don't want to provide kids. Because actually, if Tamar doesn't have kids, and therefore there are no heirs for my elder brother, then all the stuff is going to come to me. I'm the next in line. So he's going against his duties to his family and to his brother. Now, look, it's strange, isn't it? A very odd incident, and <laughs> perhaps goes without saying, but I should say it just in case that is not the way God commands us to act today. 
by any means. But we do need to be clear in this story that Onan is being disobedient. We can tell that uh, because, because of his action, verse 10, what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord and he put him to death also. Okay, Onan is sinning here. What do you do with that? What do we do with that nowadays, given that these laws of marrying your brother-in-law, you know, sister-in-law, no longer uh, apply? Well, we'll think about big themes a bit later, but, but it might be worth just pausing here and just, just thinking a little bit about Onan's motivation. Onan does not want children because they are going to inconvenience him. He doesn't want, he doesn't want to produce children because they will be a burden to him. Okay? It, it is going to make his life less well, probably less wealthy. It's going to make his life certainly less cosy. It is going to be to his detriment, he thinks, if he produces children with his new wife. Essentially, Onan refuses to have children for selfish reasons. Now, this passage has nothing to do, I think, with contraception or anything like that. Occasionally, it gets used in that way. I just don't think it's speaking about that. But there is something going on in Onan's selfishness that can be echoed, I think, even in our lives. We think of children as a lifestyle choice, even as married couples. We think of children as something that well, you know, adds to us. It'd be cute to have a kid or two. But we don't think about children in terms of discipleship and obedience to God's commands. The first command given to man and woman, Adam and Eve, go forth and multiply, go and have children. And again, Right through the Bible, it's one of these big themes. Uh, God wants his people to have children, not because kids are cute, although they are sometimes. Uh, not because it's just kind of the done thing, but so that God would have children. That sounds really strange, doesn't it? But, but that's how he speaks about it. So in Ezekiel 23, when God's people are doing terrible things, they're, they're sacrificing their own children, and God comes and tells them off. Okay, so they're his own people, Jewish people. God comes and rebukes them, and, and he doesn't say to them, why are you killing your children? He says, why are you killing my children? Our children, if we believe, belong to God before they belong to us. And later on, when he sends another prophet, Malachi, uh, to, to, to again to his people who are divorcing and abandoning their children, and God says, well, why do you think I made marriage in the first place? What's the point of marriage? What, what would we say? If, if a prophet walked into the room now and said, what's the point of marriage? What would we say? Well, perhaps we might say it's, uh, it's for the good of society. You know, it knits people together. Well, that's true. Or we might say it's, it's the right place for, uh, for sex so that we're not just sort of immoral. Well, that's true. The Bible says that as well. If we're theologically switched on, we might say, well, it's a picture of Christ and the church. It models how Jesus is going to marry the bride, the church. Well, that's true as well. But none of those answers are the ones that Malachi gives or God gives through Malachi. In Malachi, God's answer is, I made marriage because I wanted a godly offspring. I wanted children to grow up and obey me. It's one of the ways God grows the church. Christian couples, Jewish couples in the Old Testament have children, and those children grow up to believe. Now, you know as well as I do, that's not automatic. It's not that every child born to anyone who's a Christian automatically becomes a Christian. We know that. We know that. But there is a duty on God's people to have children. Uh, so I guess all I'm saying at this stage is, uh, if you are a married couple or heading towards marriage one day, do, do think of your children not simply as a kind of lifestyle choice. Don't, think, don't try and assess, you know, how many children are we going to have and what, what's our purpose in having children in the same way as the world. Now, as Christians, we're called to think about children and family and child raising as a discipleship issue. 
first and foremost. We are doing it for God's sake, not just for our own. Now, how many children we have is going to be, look, different for every family. There are so many factors, aren't there? Think about health and situation and sometimes medical issues. We know we can be um, struggle with infertility, all sorts of things. So please don't hear this as a kind of, you must have a certain number of children. But of course, that's not the case. But the duty to raise children for the Lord is one on God's people, particularly those who are married, of course. Again, from Genesis right through to Revelation. Onan is fighting against it. And so, well, look what happens. He too, verse 10, is put to death. And this time, Judah gets worried. Verse 11, he's nervous. And so he sends Tamar away. Remain a widow in your father's house until Shelah, my son, grows up. And he's worried. He doesn't want, he's only got one son left, Shelah, and he doesn't want him to marry Tamar because he's noticed that everyone who's married Tamar so far has ended up dead. So you can kind of think, you sort of sort of sympathise with with Judah. It's not ideal daughter-in-law material. Of course, it's not Tamar's fault at all. It's the sons who are being wicked. But Judah fears. So off she goes. And so we come to our third scene. Okay, we've had Judah's spouse, Judah's sons. Now it's Judah's sin. It's uh, in verse 12. Uh, it's, it's a time of mourning for Judah, briefly, because his true wife dies. His first wife dies. And then when he's cheered up a little bit, he goes to, to sheep searing. Sh- I can't say it. Sheep. I'm not even try. He goes to shear the sheep. There we go. Uh, it's that season. Uh, that, in, in, again, in the time of Israel was a sort of party time. Think Freshers' Week. Okay? All the guys get together out in the fields. We're going to shear the sheep. It's alcohol, parties. And, well, look at Judah. What's he up to? He's sleeping with a prostitute. Except he's not. He thinks he is. But he's not. You see, Tamar, who's obviously in the area that Judah's gone to, hears that, that, that Judah, her father-in-law, is going to be around. And she's realised that she's never going to get children, that, 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 that Judah is never going to give Shelah, the last son, to her uh, as a husband. And she clocks it because Shelah is now grown up, verse 14. And so she comes up with this plan, and isn't it bizarre? She comes up with a plan to cover herself up. She veils herself, she wraps herself up in a cloak, and she sits by the side of a road so that Judah thinks that she's a prostitute. And lo and behold, that's exactly what happens. He turns to her, verse 16, at the roadside and says, essentially, let me sleep with you. And she says, well, hold on. What, what am I getting out of this? Okay, what do I get for, for allowing you to sleep with me? And he says, well, I'll give you a goat. The irony there, I'll give you a kid. The pun works both languages. I'll give you a kid, a young goat. But he hasn't got a goat with him. So she says, well, what are you going to give me, okay? You've said you're going to give me a goat, but I'm not naive. There's no goat. You've not had it over. Give me a pledge. Give me a promise. Give me something I can have to show that you owe me a goat. And so what does he do? What shall I give you, verse 18? Your signet, your cord, and the staff is in your hand. So he takes the staff. She takes the staff, the kind of walking stick thing. Signet was a, um, a kind of roll thing that people used to, to put their stamp on something to say that this is mine. Imagine a kind of tube with special writing on it that would, would be on a cord. A bit like nowadays, sometimes people have uh, signet rings to sort of stamp into wax or something. Do they want to do that anymore nowadays, don't they? But anyway, in the old days, that's what they did. And, and that's what she takes. It's a bit like Judah giving Tamar his driving license and his passport. It's his kind of ID documents. And Judah sleeps with her. But it all starts to unravel. 
It's Judah's sin, it's uh, the third scene, but the fourth scene is Judah's search. When in uh, verses 20 uh, to 23, he sends the goat, no one could find her. Uh, he sends the goat via his friend, and, and the friend says, well, there are no cult prostitutes around here. And Judah's very concerned not to look a fool. Verse 23, let her keep the things as her own, lest we be laughed at. You think that's going to make you look foolish, Judah? What about your actual sin? No, he's far more concerned with keeping faith than he is avoiding sin. And so after his search uh, comes a terrible shock, Judah's shock in verses 24 uh, through to 26. It becomes obvious after a while that Tamar is pregnant. You can't hide it forever. And Judah is so hypocritical, isn't he? Verse 24, when he hears, bring her out that she be burnt. I hate people who sleep around, says Judah. Isn't that terrible? We should, we should kill her. You wonder if she's, he's sort of thinking, oh, great, finally I can be rid of her. But see the hypocrisy. He's condemning her for sexual morality when what's he just been doing? It's often the case, isn't it? But we're very quick to condemn in other people the kind of sins that actually we're most susceptible to ourselves. Do you find that in marriage or at home or just in your, just in your Christian walk? Often the things that make us most angry are the things that we do ourselves. And it's a way of sort of showing that justifying ourselves you know we condemn other people look down at other people point out all their problems as a way of covering up the fact that actually we're no better ourselves but Tamar's too smart and so she sends ahead the things she took from him the staff and the cord and the signet his id documents and did these words ring any bell any bells verse 25 she said Please identify who these are. Please identify who these belong to. It's the exact phrase that Judah and the brothers used when they sent Joseph's coat back to Jacob after they dipped it in blood. Jacob used the coat to deceive, sorry, Joseph, awful, Judah used the coat to deceive Jacob, his father. And then with the exact same words, Tamar ensnares Judah. A terrible irony there. And, and it seems that this is a kind of, well, almost like a conversion moment for Judah. Verse 26, she is more righteous than I. He doesn't just continue and say, well, kill her, get her out of my way. No, he acknowledges that he has sinned and she is more righteous than I. I'm not sure we're meant to read from that, the fact that, that Tamar was right to pretend to be a prostitute and trick her father-in-law into sleeping with her. I mean, I think that's still not good behaviour. But she is more righteous than Judah because Judah was sinning in refusing to let her marry Shayla. And then finally, in the last little scene, we get Judah's sons. Again, strange little footnote, isn't it? Do you see how it works in verse 27 through to 30? She's bearing twins. And the first one puts out a hand. And so the midwife puts a little red thread, scarlet thread on this one. But then, then he pulls back and, and the other one comes through. Uh, so the eldest, technically, is the one who stuck his first out, hand out first. Okay? And that's Zerah, the one with the red hand. But then Perez comes through. His name means breakthrough. He's the younger. These two sons are born. We'll think about that in just a moment. What, what are we meant to do with this? Okay, bizarre story. What are we meant to do with it? Let me suggest three things as we close. First of all, do you see the family that Jesus chooses for himself? Do you see the family that Jesus chooses for himself? Uh, Perez, Perez, 
that younger son is the great, 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 I'm not going to say all the greats, grandfather of Jesus. Uh, if you come on in the, in the Bible to uh, the book of Ruth, Joshua Judges and then Ruth, page 224. Uh, the story of Ruth uh, is a beautiful uh, Bible romance, we might say. But, but it ends with a little genealogy, page 224. And it is the genealogy of Perez. There he is. Do you see? Verse 18 of chapter 4. Verse 18, chapter 4. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram, Adimadab, Midadab, Nishon, Nishon, Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse. And here's the point, Jesse fathered David. This is the royal line. Perez, the son of Judah, sleeping incestuously with his daughter-in-law, is the great-great-great-great-great-grandfather of David, God's chosen king. And therefore, if we follow the genealogy in Matthew's gospel right through, we'd see he's an ancestor of Jesus. What's the point? The point is, these are the kind of people that Jesus chooses to be in his family. And I say that advisedly. Jesus, alone out of us, could actually choose his family, couldn't he? You know, the rest of we're just born with them. Nothing you, what do you do to control who your parents are? Nothing. But Jesus, of course, is God the Son. Okay? He didn't just begin to exist in the manger in Bethlehem or when he entered to Mary's womb. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He is the one, we've been looking at this in Colossians, um, who is in control of history. He's the one through whom the Father rules. Uh, by him and through him and for him, all things were made, and in him they have their being. He is the one in control, therefore, of what's going on in the story of Tamar and Judah. He, if you like, is choosing his ancestors. And he's choosing these kind of people. It tells us, first of all, perhaps, of the authenticity of the Bible. If you wanted to to try and make Christianity look good, surely you would write better characters than, than Judah and Tamar and Onan and all these folk. It's a bit like the apostles in the New Testament. Okay, they're absolutely useless. If, if you're going to make the Bible up, okay, if the apostles were going to make up all this stuff about Jesus, surely they make themselves look better. But more significantly, I think, it's just a huge encouragement. The kind of people in Jesus' family that he chooses to be in his family, his ancestors, attempted murderers, prostitutes, those who commit incest, the wondered whether you've just blown it, whether you've sinned too big. Perhaps you're not a Christian and you've thought, well, look, it, God wouldn't, wouldn't want me after what I've done. Just read through Jesus' family tree. Ever murdered your brother? Ever slept with your daughter-in-law or father-in-law? These are the kind of people God includes, Jesus includes in his family. And it's just the same now. There is no standard to enter God's people. There is no level of holiness we need to achieve. And I don't think the point is, is for us to think, well, at least I'm not that bad. Okay, that would be a way of just slightly misunderstanding the story. We're not meant to look at Judah and Tamar and think, well, at least I'm not that bad, so maybe I can be one of God's people. Rather, these stories allow us to say, yes, I am that bad, but he'll still have me. Whatever you've done, your sin cannot be greater than God's mercy and his love. Secondly, see the way that God works. Think of all the evil deeds that went on 
to get Jesus into the world. Okay, this is not a good thing that happened in Genesis 38, Tamar and Judah. And yet God worked sovereignly through these people's sin to get Jesus born. Now, he didn't force them to sin. That's one mistake we can make. Yes, God is sovereign. He's in control of all things. He never forces people to sin. There's a mystery there. Somehow we are responsible for what we do, and yet God is in control of what we do. But through this wicked act, Judah sleeping with Tamar, the Messiah, the Saviour, came to be. And again, that is so often God's pattern. Through the most wicked deeds... He brings salvation. Think of the cross. The cross was a terrible deed on behalf of those who killed Christ. They were wicked men to do it. And yet, with that most wicked of deeds, the killing of God's son, salvation came. Think of all. Well, the riffraff. Think of all the the scumbags who are in Jesus' genealogy. The murderers, the adulterers, the thieves, the liars, the deceivers. Until he comes. And he comes, if you like, as the, the true Perez. Perez means breakthrough. Jesus is the one who, in that huge line of sinners, we've got David sleep with Bathsheba, Solomon and his 300 wives, all these people. Jesus comes and is the one who breaks through. In that family line, he is the only innocent one, the truly righteous one. God uses the sinful actions of all these people and then breaks through in Christ to provide a rescuer who will be truly good, truly righteous, who will live the life we should have lived, as we thought about earlier. And that is the scandal, finally, of salvation. The scandal of salvation. I imagine you were an Israelite around the time of, of King David. Okay, so a few generations on from this story. And you're speaking to an Egyptian, and you said to the, your, your Egyptian friend, look, look, you know, we know the true God of all the universe, and he's put King David on the throne. David is his man. David is the, uh, the king that God has appointed. And the Egyptian says, oh, interesting. Okay, well, well, tell me about this. I'd like to get the right God and the right king, so tell me about David. Well, uh, his great-great-great-grandfather slept with his great-great-grandma, and they had a... And you can just think what the Egyptians... You know, imagine what the Egyptians are thinking. Right, that, that's how God works, through incest and adultery and pull the other one. It's a scandalous family history for David. But God works through scandal. I think of Mary and Joseph, Mary bearing Jesus, a pregnant virgin, can you imagine what people thought? Pull the other one. Pull the other one. But perhaps even more scandalously, what about a crucified God? Imagine the Christians of the first century trying to tell the Romans that this is the real God. That, that Jewish man that you nailed to a cross in this place called Galilee, which you probably haven't heard of. Paul says it's a stumbling block, literally a scandal on for people. They just can't believe that God works this way. Because we assess God through such human eyes, we think God must be this huge, big version of us. And if he's going to be powerful, he must show his power in kind of fireworks and spectacular things. If he's going to save, it must be impressive and mighty and obvious to us. He must save in the way we would expect. But but Paul says, no, it's completely not like that with God. God works in completely upside-down ways. He works through weakness. He works through our sin. He works ultimately, ultimately through a crucified 
saviour. And so as Christians, as we hold out that the message of the gospel to the world around, it is going to look foolish and ridiculous, shameful even. There'll be a temptation to be embarrassed about it, to be ashamed of the gospel. Just as you can imagine a, a faithful Jew being, being tempted to be ashamed of the family history of David and, and their king. But this is how God works. It's the way of the cross. He works in hidden ways. He works in weakness. He works through a crucified saviour. And therefore he gathers people like you and me. When Paul speaks about the foolishness of the cross, the foolishness, the weakness of this salvation message, he goes on to, to link it to the foolishness of God's people. You don't need to be powerful. You don't need to be wise. You don't need to be wealthy. God chooses the foolish people of this world to shame the wise. Or a small church, a new church, a weak church. But actually, if we proclaim the gospel of Christ crucified, then that is where all the power of God is at work. Let's pray. Our Father God, we praise you that you gather sinners into Christ's family. We praise you. There is no standard we need to reach and no gift we need to bring. I say, please, we pray, fill us with confidence in that weak-sounding message of Christ crucified. Uh, Might we see that uh, in that gospel message, all your power is at work. And through it, might you rescue uh, many and bring them into Christ's family. We pray in his name. Amen.